podcast. My guest today is Andrew Morgan. He's an internationally recognized director. He focuses his work on telling stories for a better tomorrow, and his experience includes a broad range of work that spans from narrative documentary storytelling for both commercial and film projects. Uh, He studied cinematography at Los Angeles Film School and went on to co-found Untold Creative, which is a hybrid filmmaking studio where he currently serves as creative director. His film, True Cost, is a well-done documentary exposing the high price the world pays for the fashion and flash fashion industry, fast fashion industry. Uh, You can check it out on Netflix and several other places. It's definitely worth watching and encouraging other people to watch. It it should change your viewpoint on on how you look at clothing and what you wear and what you buy. Also, check out his Untold America series on YouTube. I highly recommend those stories. Really well done and uh, really encouraging. And I talked to him this week about his new film, The Heretic, which follows the story of Rob Bell's journey over the past few years. And not only are all these things true, he's also a really nice guy. And one other thing is there were a lot of technical difficulties in it. I'm having to do this with a phone recording, which is not that great, but I hope you'll stick with it because it's worth it. You grew up in Atlanta? Yeah, I grew up just north of Atlanta, an area called uh, Marietta. Oh, yeah, no, well, I'm sitting 110 miles from Atlanta right here, so I'm pretty familiar with it. Yeah, you're in Anderson, is that right? That's correct. So you're talking about you got involved in filmmaking, you watched E.T. and you started shooting um, skateboard videos in your backyard, and then you got really interested in wanting to learn the technical side of it. Where and how did you learn that technical art of filmmaking? I went out to Los Angeles um, just after high school. I um, went to a film school uh, here called the LA Film School, and um, that's where I studied cinematography. And um, yeah, that was a pretty amazing experience. I mean, I was one of those kids growing up, honestly, that school was pretty difficult for me, and um, I figured out a lot of things that I wasn't good at very early. And uh, I remember when I got to Los Angeles, just as a city, but also as a school, um, I remember thinking, like, this is, this is me. You know, this, is, this just makes sense to me. Um, something about the language of stories has always been the only thing that really makes sense to me. Um, there's just something in my brain that, like, has a very hard time with linear information or factual um, things. And I think there's something about stories that just stick. So, um, yeah, that was, a pretty, that was a pretty incredible year in my life because I got to study cinematography. I also got to work. Some of the professors were also making movies, and so I got to travel and, uh, you know, assist them. And um, I, I, I was just, you know, it was, it was one of the things that, like, from day one, I was like, yep, this is, this is what I'm here to do. Well, how did that path go from choosing film as your vehicle for telling stories to raising consciousness of social issues? Well, I kind of, um, it, 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 it happened by accident, to be honest with you. I, I had an experience a few years after I got out of school um, where I lost my dad suddenly in a, a really unexpected uh, way, and it really, really shook me up. Um, it, it, was a, it was just a really profound and bewildering confusing thing to go through. And in the wake of that, um, in some ways, I think inspired by, and, and in a very real personal way, looking for answers for like how to, how to put the pieces of my life back together, I directed um, what became a documentary called After the End, which was really just spending time with people in different parts of the country who had lost someone that they loved and who had found a way to continue living um, without losing themselves in, in that process. And um, that, that film, it was, it was a really, really small film, and it was, it was just a couple of us that made it. But something about the experience of following my own curiosity and having an experience that 
was profoundly life-changing to me just in the process of having these conversations and listening to these people. And then getting to release that film and, and getting all kinds of feedback from people that I hadn't ever met that it was helpful to them, that it, that it gave them some kind of uh, sense of solidarity. Um, that, that was like a big light bulb moment for me. It was this moment of there are all of these things happening in the world, all of these experiences that we're having, all of these struggles, both personally and collectively. And what if I could use this thing that I love to go um, really try to learn and immerse myself in something? And if along the way I could also make something that in turn helps, um, that was intoxicating. And I think that really kind of set me on the path um, that the last couple of films have followed since. So that that was your first uh, effort in documentary. I, I, let me tell you, just as an aside, uh, my dad was older, but died very suddenly two years ago. And when I watched uh, this week, I watched uh, the, the film. Day. It really did, it did bring some comfort. It really is. It, it's, it's, there's never complete closure on those things, but there are pieces to puzzles that help bring little pieces of it. And I think your your work did that. That's really, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. So you're, you're taking that direction after that film, but who or what influenced your social consciousness in general? What kind of gave you, after that very personal thing, what was the next, uh, what influenced your next decision? Well, it was really interesting. Um, I, it's interesting just because when you look back, your life makes a lot more sense than it does when you look forward. And when I, when I look back as you ask that, I I turned in that film uh, to our distributor, and uh, I think it was the next day or the day after that, um, I was getting coffee at a, a place here by my house, and I picked up a copy of the New York Times, and there was this story on the front page that day, and the story uh, told about this factory, this clothing factory that had collapsed in Bangladesh, just outside of a city called Dhaka. And at that point, it was already being reported that um, the collapse had killed um, more than a thousand people, mostly women, some children. And the article uh, explained that at the time of the collapse, these people had been making clothing uh, for major Western brands. Um, and it mentioned some of the brands, and they were they were fashion brands that are household names, and they were brands that I had purchased from. And I remember standing there, and, and, I, and I say it that way only because I, I think in some ways it was the, the, the rawness of what I had just completed that had me in a, in a kind of open place to, to notice a headline that maybe I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. But I, I sat there just thinking, you know, first of all, how is it possible that in our modern world we're still making clothing? in a way that leads to this kind of loss and this kind of lessening of human life. And more personally, I remember thinking, how have I never thought about where my clothes come from? And that jolt, um, that question kind of spurred me to take the article back to my producer that morning. And I picked up the phone that day, and we started calling around the different people, journalists, activists, people who had kind of been working and different um, forms covering this kind of unseen story inside of the fashion industry. And I quickly learned that this collapse was not the first. It was actually one of many, that this was uh, the most labor-dependent industry on Earth, mostly fueled by the poorest of the working poor, uh, mostly fueled by women, that it represented an ecological nightmare, and that it continued to be something that was sort of ignored, uh, more largely speaking, uh, by the global community. And I remember by the end of that week, uh, we just decided that we wanted to make a film about it. And we kind of started out from scratch a process that ended up taking us around the world many times over over the next few years. And we documented what life was like for the people involved in this massive global supply chain, uh, the risks that they face, as well as 
uh, the environmental fallout and some of the larger consumeristic story that we're being told in the Western world that contributes. And I, I would say, honestly, um, I, I've had a, the privilege to tell a, a few stories that have been very powerful to me, but nothing uh, shook me to my core. Nothing opened my eyes more quickly um, than the experience of making that film. And and honestly, like it sounds very simple when you say it, and I know a lot of people listening have, have, have made experiences like this where – just the sheer power of, in a consolidated period of time, um, kind of, because of our production schedule, we sort of bounce back and forth between very, very rich parts of the world and very poor parts of the world. So sometimes in the same week, I would be uh, on a fashion runway in Paris or Milan, and then uh, I'd find myself in a slum in Cambodia or one of these places with the workers who were fueling this modern uh, miracle. And I think just the sharp contrast of how radically unjust the human experience is for so many people, it kind of, it just sort of broke open my American simple uh, view of things, and it kind of exposed me to a much bigger messier, more unfinished world, um, which, which I think has continued to feel a lot of what I'm doing. Well, the courage of some of those women and other workers uh, came through pretty strongly in, in that piece. Uh, and like you said, it's not something that uh, is, but those, those stories are not in the headlines of these women who are really putting their lives and their families' lives on the line to stand up to status quo over there to try to make things better for their countries. And I thought that was a very powerful part of that film. There's a, uh, there's a great quote, and I forget who said it, but somebody said, when you look at poverty from a great distance, you become arrogant. And my experience making that film was the power of uh, when you let yourself get close to the world. And, um, man, some of the experiences that I had with those people, um, the incredibly brave, bold uh, people, um, who are living and fighting against tremendously entrenched injustice on a global scale. Um, yeah, that just that goes deep. That goes deep. And I don't think there's a day that goes by now that I don't think about them. And, and frankly speaking, I think one of the things that reframed for me um, was the profound um, – influence and opportunity that I had been born into. Um, and you can use the word like privilege if you want, but it's not a guilt word. I think for me, it just raised the bar on, for some reason, I was born at a time and in a place where by no doing of my own, I have tremendous um, opportunity and opportunity to sit by or opportunity to roll up my sleeves and to do something. And um, I, I don't know. I just think it sort of it broke the American dream apart and it invited me into something much bigger that I'm still trying to figure out, that I'm still wrestling with. And there are still days that go by that I, 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 I'm awake at night thinking, am I doing everything I can be doing? And I'm just at the beginning of that journey, but it, it's certainly – um, yeah, it certainly changed my life. You're talking about great quotes. I thought the, uh, the fact that there are people here trying to do what they can, uh, the Texas farmer who talked about nature can heal, it, heal itself in small pockets, but not the kind of scale we're looking at, I thought that was a pretty powerful part of the narrative. Uh, it's good to see that you included, but there are people here trying to do what they can. Yeah, and what an incredible thing to realize. I think about that a lot when I spend time documenting people's stories and listening to people. Is um, I think about the fact that it, that that our world is not inevitable. That it's made up by choices of men and women every day. And it's you know it's so easy to look back at history as a sweeping arc. Um, and when you're up close, as you said, when you're when you're close to it. Um, you realize that people wake up and they make brave decisions to move the story forward. They challenge assumptions. Um, they speak up for people who are vulnerable. And in doing so, um, they create something that then becomes history. And I think, um, yeah, that's just a profound 
that's a profoundly different way of looking at life than the sort of default Western narrative I was born into. Um, and I, yeah, I still, still wrestling with that. It's true counterculture. I mean, I, I came up in the 60s counterculture, and uh, it really speaks the propaganda that some of the people were trying to spin. Um, of course, we have a leader in this country now who sort of bases much of his approach on propaganda, deflection, whataboutism, fake news mantras, and it's kind of crept its way into the culture in ways I never thought I would witness. So it's good to hear voices in the wilderness because, um, you know, there are 30% of Americans who would dismiss the kind of work you do as the best anti-capitalism, the worst anti-American. But a key component seems to be that wariness and materialism uh, is that an intentional target, or is it just a byproduct of the subject matter? Well, I think what's an intentional target for me is, I think what interests me most is, as a storyteller, and again, coming from the context where what I understand most clearly is stories, um, I think it's, it's the, the awareness that our world is built on and defined by the stories that we believe and the stories we tell. And so if we're going to get serious on any level about creating a more just, a more sustainable, a more beautiful future up ahead, then it's not enough just to put Band-Aids or, or just, you know, spew outrage that, like, below the surface of any society – there is a storyline, and there are dominant threads in that storyline. Some of those stories are true and useful, good, beautiful stories. Others are not, and they're not all created equal. Some of those stories are, are funded. Um, they're funded to the tune of billions of dollars. And one of those stories, I think, is the story of materialism. It is the story of consumerism. And a large part of the American... Uh, free market, you know, you have it all up together. It's, it's a very particular story. It's a very certain, um, very recent um, way of looking at the world. It chooses to value some things and by default not to value other things. It's unbelievably um, individualistic. It is defined by the winners. It doesn't like to look closely at the people who are losing. Um, so it, it has a thing. It has, it has got us really far. It has brought about a lot. It has built big buildings. It has brought technological revolutions. It has. But it also has put us on uh, a, a, an, an environmental suicide course. It has left us with a world that is more violent than ever, um, where inequality is soaring to new heights. Um, so I think when I looked at the whole the whole thing, you know, from the way in this particular story, the factories were set up where they're not owned by the companies and then the you know, you go all around the like, all the injustice, all the all the things that are baked in. The most toxic thing of all was that story itself. Because that story at its heart is designed to fuel something that is largely economic, and it is not designed with human well-being at its core. So um, that's why I think that that took uh, center stage. It was like my experience of making that film was pulling one thread. It's like it kept coming unraveled, and and it and it, it started with a factory falling down on innocent women, and it led all the way to. Wait, why haven't we settled on this as the best way to organize our world? Um, so, yeah, that's fascinating stuff to me. The, the, the personal impact this has had on you, you have a family, right? Don't you have kids? I do, yeah, I have four kids. Two, two boys and two girls. How old are they? Uh, the oldest is 10 and the youngest uh, is 5. Um, how has this affected your personal approach to what you buy and how you live? And does your family share those views? Yeah, it's been powerful. I mean, it's changed the conversation. I think one of the things that was really humbling about making a film like that was that um, I was not, like, you know, the expert coming in to share my wisdom. <laughs> I was coming in as customer number one. Um, I had never thought about where something came from, um, honestly. 
You know, I really haven't. And, and to go from that point to having this experience to then coming out on the other side and saying, okay, how do we live? How do we make choices? What are we contributing to? Um, it's powerful. It's changed the way we bring new things into our home. It's dramatically reduced the number of new things. I think we value the things that we do have and we take care of them in a different way. Um, we also really, I think for the first time, we really understand that when we buy something, we are endorsing um, a story. We're, we're, we're endorsing a whole path that that thing took to get to us. And, you know, we're not perfect um, by any stretch of the imagination, and we're still, uh, I think, we feel kind of clumsy in the way that we're figuring it out as we go. But it is a very, very, very meaningful thing to suddenly realize that the choices that I make, all the way as small as, you know, a, a T-shirt that I buy, have an actual impact on the world. And I think more largely even than what we buy, that has had an empathy-building um, effect on, on a lot of the conversations that we're having. Just, just when, you, when, you, when you look through that curtain, that kind of veneer that's a shopping mall that's designed to show you images of beautiful things and not look past that, you know? Like, it's a very specific world that we've built. And uh, once you look through that curtain and you start to consider uh, environmental impact and human impact of, of various kinds, you just can't unsee that. And I think for me now, it's just kind of, it's, it's enriching a lot of the decisions I make, whether it's what I eat, what I buy, how I, you know, they all go through a different filter. And it's not, it's not at all paralyzing, you know, um, and, and they're not perfect decisions. It's, it's just enriching because it's like those things I care about on a broad global level, now I'm invited to, to be a part of that all the way down to the smallest things, um, and that's been fun. I mean, it's, a really, it's been a really, really fun, unfinished journey, and, uh, and one that now our kids are, are definitely a part of with us. So your 10-year-old understands enough to kind of go on, or does it bother him that maybe he's got friends who are buying the latest everything and he's thinking about what he buys? Yeah, no, I think, I, think, I think they get it. I mean, I think it's funny how you have uh, – a certain value system in, in your home, whether you realize it or not. And I think uh, our kids are so young, you know, they're, they're, they're very young and they understand things at varying degrees. But I do think, um, yeah, some of the things that were just not at all value for me growing up were going to be valued in our house. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not interested in making that like dogmatic. Um, and we're not interested in like covering everything we buy in guilt. Um, it's just more of a game. You know, it's more of a process of saying, like, how can we line up our life on, uh, on all the practical levels? How can we line that up with the stuff that we say and we believe on, on larger levels? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's great to hear that. I know it's been several years ago when we raised our kids, but we raised them. Some of our teachers accused us of raising, raising cynics because when we'd watch television, commercials would come on, and we would have discussions about what are they doing, why are they trying to do it, where did this stuff come from, how did it impact the world? And so they go to school and take that approach that was not appreciated by most of the teachers. <laughs> we were just having that conversation, uh, Greg, when we were watching the Olympics. We usually watch a lot of stuff on demand now, so there's not as much ads, but we were watching um, the Olympics and a lot of ads came on. And it, was, it was great. It was a great conversation to be like, they're trying to sell you something. Can you figure out how? You know? Yeah, I love that stuff. <laughs> It's worked. My, I can tell you, 10 years down the road, you'll be glad and they'll be glad because they won't be suckers. Um, it, do you think that spirituality is a key component of this quest to find purpose and meaning? It seems like purpose and meaning, several times you've mentioned that, it shows up in your work. Do you think spirituality is a key component of this quest for purpose and meaning? I think so. I think one of, one of the, the things that I wrestled with a lot coming off of uh, that film in particular was I think for a while there I I was I, I sort of operated with this like simplistic journalistic approach that if we can just let the world know, if there can just be more awareness, if we can just get these stories out, then surely thinking, feeling, people everywhere will, you know, 
continue to wake up and we'll solve these problems and we'll build a better world just on a very tactile uh, level. And to be honest, you know, the spiritual religious traditions that I grew up with just kind of hadn't kept pace with the world I saw myself living in. And I had, I had moved away from it because it didn't feel... It didn't feel important. I don't know how else to say it than that. Um, it didn't feel like it. Um, yeah, it just didn't. It didn't feel like the most important thing I was seeing. And I remember having experience when we finished that film, realizing both the immensity of um, issues that we're facing as a planet, and just coming to this very sober realization that awareness alone wasn't going to fix that. And that if we were, as I say, going to get really serious about um, creating a new story moving forward, then it was going to require going deeper into not just the story that had got us here, but um, the traditions, um, the religions that had put a lot of that emotion. So I think I began to look at spirituality, uh, faith, religion, in a very different light, suddenly it went from something that wasn't that important to, well, for, for billions of people, um, the dominant way they look at reality and understand and make sense of their life comes through um, the filter of, of religion. So what, like, we have to take that seriously. Like, that's not ancillary anymore to the kind of world we're building. Suddenly it was like, oh, that's, that sits right at the very center. Like, how do people wake up to their responsibility as human beings, as stewards of this planet? And that's not going to come from, you know, just enough documentaries. <laughs> that's going to take something deeper. So I think that was kind of what was beginning to open back up in my head and my heart, um, which is right about the time that I met Rob. I was going to ask you, but that, did that, that lead to the decision to approach Rob about documentary? Yeah, I, it was really about that same time. The Truth Boss had come out. Uh, we had just finished up the press tour for it, and I met Rob at a birthday party here in Los Angeles that our daughters were attending. And uh, we, we began a conversation that day that just kind of continued. And um, the conversation was really fascinating to me. Um, what he was working on was really, really, really interesting to me on a personal level because of how I had grown up, um, because that was kind of the tradition I had come out of. What he was articulating, how he was going about it, um, was just really fascinating on a personal level. And then I began to uh, – I attended a couple of events that he was doing just to, you know, just as his friend, just to kind of be there. And – I looked around the room, and I started to realize my story wasn't all that rare. And actually, there were a lot of people out there um, who had been given a very particular view uh, of religion and of the world and had grown out of it, you know, had, had kind of uh, put it down. And yet, were still hungry and thirsty to figure out answers uh, to some of the big questions that we all wrestle with. And I think that was when, like, the filmmaker part of me thought, man, this stuff's not just interesting to me. I think this stuff really does go to the heart of, you know, what's taking place right now uh, all around us. And that was, yeah, that was when I sat down with Robin Kristen, and I just said, I don't know if there's a film here. I really don't. Never made something like this. But I would love to spend a couple years um, – just following you around and filming you. I'd love to film our conversations. I'd love to film your work. And I'd love to film some of the people that are involved in that work. And um, and we'll see what it turns into. And that's, yeah, that's really how it started. When, when was this filmed? I noticed it's before Pete Rollins got his haircut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just did. <laughs> we just did the, uh, we had the premiere in Los Angeles this weekend which was such a powerful experience for so many reasons. Uh, chief among them uh, was that Rob had not seen the film till that, that evening. Um, so it was just completely over, it was overwhelming on a lot of levels. But when I, when I walked out of the theater, I passed Pete and he said, uh, he said, wonderful job, congrats. And he said, I just wish I had gotten my hair cut sooner. <laughs> Uh, so the premiere was this past weekend? 
Yeah, it was Saturday night. And I'm uh, <laughs> I'm still kind of recovering from it, to be honest with you. It, you know, it's, it's a really wild experience. You, you make these things, and they're very personal, and they take a long time, and they're very small. And uh, they have a real impact on you, and then, and then other people get to see it. And that's what happened Saturday. We had... Um, we had people in the theater, and uh, yeah, Rob and I got up afterwards actually and had a little conversation um, on stage after the film. And you uh, looking down and, and seeing his face when I introduced him, and you know he was crying, and Christian was crying, and um, it was yeah, it was it was very overwhelming, very beautiful night. Were you surprised you didn't want to see it beforehand? It was pretty incredible. I mean, one of the things Rob said from the beginning, like, I, I was pretty honest with Rob about a couple of things when I sat down with him. Um, one of the things I was pretty honest about was, um, this is going to be my film. And I said, I'm not, it's not that I'm a narcissistic control freak, uh, although, I don't maybe I am. But I said, it really has to work this one way. And the way it has to work is, I have to follow your stuff, and I have to use my curiosity as a compass to put something together that is not you making a film about you. And I said, you're not going to have any input. You're not going to have any creative involvement. Uh, you're not going to have any, any edit privilege. Um, you're going to see it when it's done. And he jumped at it. He went, he went for it, which is looking back a pretty brave. It's a pretty brave thing to do, to be honest. And then when we finished it, I, we were scheduling the release. I said, you know, I, I can send it to you. You can see it. Um, and that was when he said, how about we just wait till the premiere, we've come this far, it's too late now. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's a pretty extraordinary thing, and that's a pretty rare thing, to be honest. Now, have you guys become friends? It sounds like you've spent a fair amount of time with him. Yeah, we did become friends. Um, absolutely. Um, we spent an enormous amount of time together. I mean, I, it, it was really a two-and-a-half-year two process, and, um, yeah, we spent a lot of time. I mean, there's a lot that you see in the film that obviously I was I was with him for, and then that just also represents uh, a lot of travel, a lot of um, yeah, a lot of hours. I mean, I, it kind of feels like in some ways the film is just a it's like a boiled down version of uh, a very long, very meaningful conversation that I've been having about for the last couple of years, and um, I'm pretty clear about the fact that I'm making something not as a, like, investigatory evaluation, but more as I think what he's doing is really important, and I think it's helpful, and I want to I wanna highlight it. Um, I was talking to a journalist yesterday, and she was like, how can you make a movie about someone that you're uh, friends with? And I was like, very easily. I just did it. <laughs> and I, I'm not really going to split hairs about that. I, I came... And as someone who didn't know him at all, and I think um, I told him this at the premiere when we were talking afterwards, I, I feel like I, I gained a friend. And, um, yeah, it's been a very – this one's really interesting. It's like, you know, this film is different than stuff I've done before because it's very much about Rob. It very much uses Rob's life and his work as a lens into exploring these ideas. And yet, at the same time, it feels like one of the most personal things I've, I've made. And um, – I think that's just a testament to how small, how intimate, how um, fueled by my own personal creativity and, and curiosity the whole thing was. Yeah, I think uh, I have followed his uh, career since he began Mars Hill. I think you covered it very well. I'm glad it went well on the premiere, and I'm, I'm glad uh, that you guys have become friends. Have you taken your surfing yet? Yeah, you know, I have become uh, an avid surfer, uh, a novice, but an avid surfer uh, directly as a result of making the film. So um, it's already been successful in that way. Everything else now is, is extra because that truly has uh, enriched my life in a big way. Yeah, he's a surfing evangelist. Isn't he? That's terrific. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, the, the film. that y'all hope people get a chance to see it. And where is it going to be available for people? Netflix? Or where is it going to be available? Yeah, it comes out, uh, initially it comes out on March 1st, which is this coming Thursday when you and I are talking right now, on Amazon and on iTunes. Um, it's also going to be out that same day for uh, DVD Blu-ray. It will be up for pre-order on Amazon. Um, 
and then yeah, we've got some other thoughts and plans down the road, but that's that's how it initially kind of came out here this week. Uh, a couple of quick things more to run by. How big, you've been doing this a while now, is it still, you still have a small crew? How big is your crew? Do you do the editing? What kind of gear do you guys use? Yeah, uh, it depends on the project, but uh, very small. I work with uh, a very small group of people. Um, I work, my, my wife Emily is a, a, a partner. She produces, I've got another producing partner named Michael Ross that I worked with on this one. He and I uh, edit everything together. Um, and then we've got a uh, sound mixer that we work with, he travels with us. Um, and there's different parts of it, you know, there's a composer that we use for the music, he's done my last five things now. Um, but very, very small, and I mean, on set, like incredibly small, we did this film with, uh, my producer Michael, uh, was also doing, you know, holding a boom pole and mixing audio. And I was usually talking to Rob and holding a camera. So it was really the two of us. Um, we used a variety of cameras on this one. Um, we used uh, Sony A3. We used a uh, Canon C100. Um, very, very small cameras, though. Very, very small. Very, very simple. Um, yeah, it's kind of like uh, it, it's a very running gun sort of style. And then we kind of just try to get as much as we can and then put the pieces together after the fact. It's different than, um, you know, certainly different than a scripted film in that, like, it's, it's really free and really fun because you just are kind of collecting pieces, you know. You, you're, you're just, you sort of have a very open, wide, big net that you're casting. And then he and I spend um, weeks, uh, months in a dark room kind of putting the pieces together and, um, you know, getting it to, it's almost like sculpture. It's like you're just kind of whittling away, whittling away, like getting as much of the excess out of the way. And, and then you kind of find the story somewhere in there. So, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of intoxicating. It's, it's really fun. I still enjoy the process. I meant to ask you this when we were talking about the other film. Do people ever, when you meet people, do you catch them looking at what you're wearing and ask you about their films? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I get those questions all the time, and uh, I'm happy. I'm happy to get those questions. It's um, yeah, it's really funny. It's really funny too because we got a lot of those questions when the truth off was coming out, and I'm not a very fashionable person. I mean, I I really kind of have more of like a uniform approach to what I wear. It's like very very simple. Um, and so we were doing a lot at that time with like Vogue and like all these big, uh, you know, we were in all these really uh, fashion forward environments. And I always felt like a really bad spokesperson for the whole thing. Um, we had another producer, Olivia Furk, on that one who's super, super uh, connected to the fashion world. And she did a, she did a much better job. Because, yeah, my answers are very uninspiring usually. <laughs> so the. Um March 3rd, The Heretic, people can find it at uh, Amazon and um, iTunes. Um, I don't want to, to kill any of the buzz because it is, it is something I hope people will get a chance to see and, and we'll take the time and the effort to see it. What's your next project? What are you working on in your days ahead? I don't know right now, to be honest with you. Um, there are a lot of people who can do like multiple things at one time and uh, they're very, very talented and good at it. I realized a little while back that I'm the sort of person that like, for better or worse, I just kind of have to do these things one at a time. They're just really, they're very, very, I mean, they're very small films, but they're very large in my world. And they sort of take every bit of my uh, attention and energy. So I really feel, I've, I've got some ideas, I've got some things that we're talking about, but I kind of feel like um, we just had a premiere and we're doing some press this weekend next. And then um, I feel like I'm, I'm going to kind of sit down and try to figure out, like, you know, exactly what, what comes next. And those things have a way of kind of emerging. I, I know that it'll be on the path. Um, I, I hope each one continues to be very different. But I, I think there's just something in me that's, like, hardwired for uh, something sparks my curiosity. And I just know it when it happens. You know, you've got to live with these things for a long time. So it can't be something that you just kind of think is interesting. It has to be sort of like the most interesting thing in the world at the beginning so that you can get all the way through it. Um, so, yeah, I expect that that will come next. Um, at least I, I hope it does. <laughs> Focus your next hands on because everything so far has been meaningful. I appreciate the work you've done. 
and I appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Yeah, you got it, man. Thanks for the thoughtful conversation. It's been great. And again, uh, I apologize for the technical difficulties we had in the phone, but uh, it was a really wonderful conversation with a really uh, innovative guy that's doing a lot of important stuff. Uh, everybody's got a camera now. Everybody's pointing it at something, and I feel like Andrew is pointing it, pointing it at things that matter and things that can make a difference not only in uh, the lives of those behind the camera but for those who get to see what their eye has captured uh, that was recorded last week, and we are into the second week of March here. This is being recorded on March the 5th. So um, do get uh, go to Amazon and check out uh, the uh, or, or to iTunes and check out The Heretic. It's a Rob Bell documentary by Andrew Morgan. And again, I highly recommend checking out his, his other uh, work as well. True Cost is, is on Netflix, um, and uh, his stories on YouTube. And he, he, you'll enjoy that. Take my word for it. Well, next time on the Thinking God podcast, I have Shane Hips, author of Cats Don't Bark. So join us again next time. And until then, get out and do something to make the world better. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing
there are a lot of folks out there in every tradition who want to tell you what they believe and uh, and write it all down for you. And, and while there's certainly a place for some of that, I like to talk to somebody who wants to show me what they believe. And I appreciate uh, guys like JT and the work they do and the amount of uh, suffering they turn into into joy for a lot of families and for a lot of widows who uh, really don't have a lot of other options at this point in, in, in our country today. That's it for this week's Thinking God podcast. Join me again next time as we look at voices of faith and hope in a world that doesn't always reward those. So come.